who was Jesus? Is he a historical character? Who wrote the Gospels? Why are they written in Greek? Why did they have a pro-Roman perspective? Why was the religion headquartered in Rome? Those were the mysteries that I saw about the Gospels. The origin of the Christian religion has been a subject steeped in mystery for nearly 2,000 years. Joseph Atwell is one of a number of scholars today from all around the world who are questioning the historic facts behind these ancient mysteries. When examining the actual history of this era, many of the answers provided by the church and Christian scholars do not hold up to rigorous scrutiny. This is really important for our culture, to understand where Christianity came from. No doubt Christians have done a lot of good for the world. But then there are other Christians, often the most dogmatic, who create wars, hatred, and other harm under the disguise of religion. In studying how Christianity emerged, many of our scholars agree that it was used as a political tool to control the masses of the day, and it is still being used this way today. The problem is that Christianity has been used as a tool by government that uses the goodness in people against them. For example, support for the wars in the Middle East has been preached to evangelical Christians as a way to speed up the end of days. This is just one example of the way that propaganda is used to control and manipulate the populace. Actually, according to my study of the ancient texts, the second coming of the Christ has already occurred. Maybe we need to expand the possible answers about how Christianity originated, and deeper questions need to be asked. Maybe we need to examine what political motives were behind the formation of the Christian religion. I think it's a requirement of alert citizens to know how the Gospels were written, why they were written, who produced them, what was the purpose and back of all this. This is good citizenry. Everyone should be involved in this. Today, we live on the brink of an immense paradigm shift. And this modern time is very parallel to the era in which Christianity emerged. Studying this ancient era can give us the perspective needed for coming up with solutions to today's problems and for helping create the better world that we envision. And the penny dropped, the penny dropped that Jesus, as a human being, never existed. The presentation of the Jesus character, it's somewhat of a composite of many messianic leaders of the time. 
well, let's just go back to the drawing board and uh, we'll leave aside all of the assumptions of Christian history and let's just look at the text afresh and consider every possibility. Let's, uh, let's open the whole game up. Can you think that Christianity is really paganism by a different name? Uh, now it feels completely obvious. Some of us are saying that this was a sun god turned into a Jewish man. In all of this, we're dealing with literature. We're not dealing with history. So the answer is no, there is no um, history to this character of Jesus. It's entirely a literary creation. Some of our Bible scholars are mavericks, working outside the restrictions of mainstream religious institutions. This allows them the freedom to provide fresh insights and draw some startling conclusions about how Christianity was formed. I began reading a number of books on the subject. This turned into a decade-long research. For Joseph Atwell, the key was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only Jewish literature ever discovered from the first century AD or CE, the time that Jesus would have been preaching among the Jews. The characters in the Dead Sea Scrolls were militaristic. And you could see that this movement wanted to push the foreigners out of Israel. They were fundamentalists. Whereas the characters in the gospel are different. They are pacifistic. They are turning the other cheek. They're giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. How did a movement like Christianity come to exist in a region that was occupied by Roman soldiers and had Jewish zealots within it that were going to push these Romans out? How was that possible? I began studying the other two major works of the era, the New Testament and Wars of the Jews by Josephus, a Roman court historian who described the war between the Romans and the Jews in the first century. While reading these works side by side, I noticed an amazing connection between them. Certain events from the ministry of Jesus seemed to closely parallel episodes from the military campaign of Roman Caesar Titus Flavius a campaign which took place 40 years after Jesus supposedly lived. My efforts to understand these connections led me to an incredible discovery. Christianity had been invented by a little-known family of Roman Caesars, the Flavians. And they left us documents to prove it. The Flavians uh, are not a household name, and yet it's the Flavians who completely reshaped the Roman Empire. In Rome, of course, there's the, there's the Colosseum, which is uh, understood to be the best known monument of the ancient Roman Empire, perhaps. The Colosseum is, in fact, a Flavian construction produced during the Flavian period. It's under the Flavians that both Rabbinic Judaism and Christianity take shape. Why would the Flavians be interested in creating religions? Much like today, their era was marked by political power struggles, a bankrupt economy, religious conflicts, and endless wars. In the midst of this turmoil, the Flavians seized control of the Roman Empire and ushered in an immense paradigm shift. 
To understand the Flavians' rise to power, we need to go back to the reign of the previous powerful rulers, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Beginning with Julius Caesar in the year 49 BCE, the Julio-Claudians ruled Rome for over a hundred years, transforming the government from a republic into an empire. This family contained all the famous Caesars, Julius, who predated the time of Jesus, Augustus, who was Caesar at the time of Jesus' supposed birth, Tiberius, who ruled during Jesus' supposed death, followed by the infamous Caligula, then Claudius, and ending the Julio-Claudian dynasty with Nero, whose reign begins in 54 CE. The Julio-Claudians enjoyed a godlike status until the family degenerated and began to damage the Roman Empire. By the time of Nero, his famous decadence was bankrupting the empire, and the Jews of Judea were staging a huge rebellion against their Roman rulers. Judea was one of the many conquered provinces that made up the Roman Empire. This region, which was also known as Palestine, was controlled by a family that served as Rome's tax collector, the Herods. They were a Greco-Arab family, somewhat possibly Judaized, though only Judaized when it was convenient to please the subjects they were given, who were put in power in Palestine and destroyed the previous Jewish ruling family, the Maccabean family, root and stalk. Besides being heavily taxed and ruled by a non-Jewish family put in power by Rome, the Jews were further inflamed by the requirement that a statue of the Caesar be placed for worship in every temple throughout the empire. In the Roman Empire, you could pretty much have any god you want, but legally, you had to submit to the emperor as a god as well. You had to at least acknowledge that the, uh, the Roman leader was also a divine figure. But the Jews would not have any of it. It's fundamental to Jewish belief that you shall make no graven images. It's one of the, the commandments um, given at Sinai um, by God. So the Jews never made representations of God. The Jews had a very different type of religion. They had a religion which was much more focused on the book and less focused upon cultic statues. This presented a real problem for the Romans. They tried to install statues of Caesar, but uh, the Jews weren't going to buy that at all. In fact, it aggravated them. It enraged them. And the, the Romans really, I, I think, didn't understand this. It's not statues, it's books. And those books contained what are known as the Jewish messianic prophecies. The thing that most moved the Jews revolt against Rome was an obscure prophecy from among their writings that a world ruler would come out of Palestine. Holy books inspired the Jews to expect a redeemer who would redeem Israel, rescue Israel, restore Israel to power and leadership in the world. The Messiah that the literature described was a warrior. The Messiahs would have claimed the same attributes that David did. David could overcome any army because God gave him the power to do it. If you had the power of God, you could easily defeat the Roman army. 
the people rebelled against Rome and were led by a messianic movement that had a series of messiahs that had come forward to fight against the Roman Empire. The Hebrew word Messiah is translated into Greek as Christos, or Christ, so the title of Christ can describe any of the numerous messiahs of this movement. Yes, the word Christ, or Christians, can uh, refer to the Palestine Messianic movement, um, but it's a later term, it's a later reformulation of the Messianic movement in Palestine. This movement rebels against Rome in 66 and is successful. It actually defeats them militarily. So it must have been a huge movement. The victorious Jews set up a nation state directly in the Roman Empire. And the Romans had to do something about it. There was a real danger that this messianic movement could not only boil over in Judea itself, but could spread to other Jewish communities and other parts of the Roman Empire. Rome ruled its colonies with a rod of iron and any resistance was going to be met with brute force. At this time during Nero's reign, two of the finest military men in the empire were the Flavians, Vespasian and his son Titus. Vespasian and Titus were military men. They spent a great deal of their life outside of Rome. For over a decade, they had waged war against the Druids in Brittany and Gaul. Vespasian and Titus were successful in essentially destroying the Druids. They left behind no historical record of their existence. And it's the Flavians that Nero calls upon when he needs to suppress the Jews' rebellion in Judea. Nero responded by asking his best general, Vespasian, and his son Titus to go into Judea with a huge army, 60, 70,000 troops, and a similar number of support individuals. So they meant business. The Romans came down to crush the rebellion. In the year 66 CE, the Flavians begin their military campaign against the Jews. They start further north in Galilee, where the first of three key events takes place. They destroy the Jewish towns of Galilee. They also capture a Jewish rebel who later becomes a critical figure in the formulation of Christianity. This is where they captured one of the leaders of the rebellion, a Jew named Josephus bar Matthias. Now, Josephus presented himself to the Flavians as a prophet. He survived. He survived apparently by telling Vespasian that the prophecies of the Jews pointed out that Vespasian would become emperor. And of course he did, so Vespasian quite liked Josephus. He used him as a translator in his entourage. He used him to appeal to the rebels to surrender. At this point, Josephus became a turncoat and worked with the Flavians against the rebellion. Meanwhile, chaos is increasing back in Rome, where Nero's rule is being threatened. In the year 68, the Senate found the courage to depose Nero and he committed suicide. Now in that circumstance, Vespasian was a prime candidate to become emperor. In the middle of this war, Vespasian returned to Rome and seized the throne. The Flavians then became the imperial family. With Vespasian becoming the new Caesar in Rome, Titus stays behind on the battlefield and sets his sights on Jerusalem where the other two key events take place. Titus encircles Jerusalem with a wall, 
and finally he raises the temple, leaving not one stone atop another. It took a while. They eventually had to bring on starvation by building a wall, a barricade entirely enveloping the city. What happens, of course, is the temple in 70 is completely destroyed. For the Jews, it was the ultimate calamity because, of course, this was the house of their god and it was destroyed by the Romans quite thoroughly. Titus, of course, was the victor of this great siege. Titus carried the spoils of this captured city back to Rome for his triumph. He took the treasures of the temple, their famous seven-branch candlestick. You can see it on the arch of Titus in Rome. It celebrates that tremendous victory of Rome again triumphant. And Titus, of course, is the hero of the day. All of the artifacts from the temple that they seized, they put on public display in what they refer to as the Palace of Peace, except for one item. The Jewish scripture, Josephus records that the Flavians took and placed in their private palace where no one was allowed to see it. Although Titus Flavius successfully ended the rebellion in Judea, another rebellion soon broke out in Alexandria, Egypt. The Flavians were clear that this was not the end of the Jewish messianic movement. They also recognized that it was the Jews' messianic literature that was fueling this movement. So once they captured the Jewish scripture, they had all other copies of it destroyed. And that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls had to have been buried in a cave, because that was the only way they could be safe from the Roman destruction. There was not a single scrap of literature found from the Messianic movement until the scrolls were discovered. That's why they're such a treasure, because they're the only real voice of the Messianic movement that we have. And the real voice of the Jews' Messianic movement, according to our scholars, was violent and militaristic, not the pacifistic version depicted in the Gospels. War against Rome was a Messianic war. So that's why I say that the scrolls are not only the literature of the Messianic movement in Palestine, they're also the literature of the war against Rome. The Romans needed to subdue the Jews' religion, so they set about influencing it and changing it. They realize they can't destroy the Jewish religion altogether. That's not their objective. They realize they're sensible enough to realize that they can't do that. So what you have to do is try to create a type of Judaism that is benign. And it's exactly coinciding with the rise of the Flavian dynasty is the arrival of two benign forms of Jewish ideology. It's during this period that a new literature enters history, which describes a peace-loving, turn-the-other-cheek preaching Jewish Messiah named Jesus Christ. But if the Flavians wrote the Gospels, how could a Roman family know how to write Jewish literature that refers to Jewish prophecy? The answer lies in the Flavians' collaborations with a number of Jewish intellectuals, beginning with their own court historian, Josephus. Josephus arrives back in Rome with Titus. He becomes an adopted member of the Flavian family. An amazing turn of events for the Jewish turncoat. He becomes Flavius Josephus. 
Josephus at this time begins writing the history of the war. And he records that Titus gave him the Jewish scripture. Josephus' histories have always been associated with the origins of Christianity. Time and again, you can find parallels between what Josephus writes and what turns up in the Gospels. It's a powerful evidence of their true origin. In reading the works of Josephus side by side with the Gospels, scholars have noticed parallels between the two works. It appears as though the history of Josephus records events that fulfill the prophecies of the Old and New Testaments. Early Christians understood this connection. In fact, when the Bible first began to be printed in the Middle Ages, it included the history of Josephus. He was employed to write the official history that we have. The other histories from this period have been destroyed ruthlessly by the Romans. Josephus tells us this in very chilling passages, how the Romans exerted complete control of the literature of this period. There were alternative histories of the Jewish war written. Well, the Romans rounded up the writers of those histories and executed them. They rounded up all the copies of those histories and destroyed them. That is to say, they ruthlessly wiped out any alternative history so that the only history we have is written by Josephus. And let's remember who Josephus was. Chief propagandist of the, the Flavian dynasty, and he was very, very successful. He moved back to Rome. He was given a, uh, an apartment in the emperor's own townhouse, and he was appointed the chronicler of the Roman Jewish war using Vespasian's own diaries of the events. Also in the pages of his history, Josephus declares that the Jews' Messiah or Christ is none other than Flavius Vespasian and his dynastic family. To put it succinctly, Josephus says that there was a prophecy that a world ruler would come out of Palestine. The Jews thought this applied to one of their own. They were wrong in their interpretations. He used the most cynical interpretation. He applied it to the rise of the Roman emperor in Palestine. Josephus recorded that the Messianic prophecies foresaw not a Jew, but Vespasian and his dynasty. In fact, all of the Flavian historians recorded that the Flavian Caesar was the Christ. It was important to the Flavians that they be seen as the Christ, as divine and godlike, and this was not mere vanity. The Julio-Claudians before them had already established that presenting themselves as gods was a powerful tool in controlling their subjects. When the Flavians took over the throne, they inherited an enormous bureaucracy that was already in place, the imperial cult, which was dedicated to promoting the idea of Caesar as a god. Another part of the puzzle is the Roman imperial cult. Why is it important? Well, because it coincides with that same period of time as the emergence of the Christ cult you had a whole social community. The whole social structure of these conquered territories um, was governed by the imperial cult. And if you wanted to succeed, the key social community to join was the imperial cult, because that's where all the movers and shakers were. This idea of the emperor becoming a, a, an object of worship was well established in the Roman system before Vespasian and Titus came along. It was prevalent in, in all major centres. It had its own priesthood. 
there was a ceremony, an annual celebration, annual games for the Imperial cult. Now, it had many characteristics which would later colour the Christian cult. It grew in the same centres. It made claims that were later transferred to Christ. The Julio-Claudians had claimed that they were of divine descent and that they were therefore legitimate. Their power base was the Roman aristocracy, the Roman nobility. All of that collapsed into this power vacuum. Vespasian was declared emperor by the troops, by the Roman army. So effectively, it was a military coup. With the change of dynasty, they have to create a whole mythology to legitimise that dynasty. At the same time, they're creating a whole mythology to counter Jewish messianism. Somewhere along the line, those two things get mixed together. When Vespasian died, Titus began the process of having his father deified. This is a complicated process because only the Roman Senate can bestow on an individual the title of Deus or God. Titus came to the Senate and presented evidence that the life of his father had been divine. Certainly this would have included the military campaign that the Flavians waged through Judea. And it's at this time I think the Gospels were written. Because the theological structure in the Gospels of a God the Father and the Son of God is the same one that Titus would have been presenting to the Roman Senate. Well, the Roman Senate did accept Titus's evidence and Vespasian was deified and became a god. Titus therefore became a son of God. The Arch of Titus that still stands in modern Rome today is inscribed with a dedication to the divine Titus, son of the divine Vespasian, or son of a god. This imperial cult set up to worship Caesar as God also provided the basis for the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Now the rituals, paraphernalia and symbols of paganism were transferred wholesale to the Christian Church. The most obvious and clear example is where the title of the pagan chief priest of Rome, the Pontifex Maximus, became the title of the Pope the Christian Pope. If you look at who held the original bishop positions in the Catholic Church in those early times, you will see that they are members of the same pagan aristocracy. They simply changed their clothing a little bit. They wore the same garments, but they wore slightly different headdresses. They had become from being a priest of a pagan cult to being a priest of Rome. Where the Vatican now stands, there was once a pagan temple which celebrated the mysteries of a dying and resurrecting God-man who wasn't Jesus. There are many churches in Rome, I've been to a few, where you go above into the church and there is Jesus. And you go underneath and there's a little sanctuary of Mithras. And it's basically the same figure. So the Roman plot to invent Christianity is just so clever when you think about it. Through the Pope, who is God's representative on earth, they no longer needed expensive standing armies, wars and punishment of disobedient peasants. They could, through religion, rule their subjects. 
Over time, Roman Christianity propagated throughout the empire by way of the mass media of the day, the Roman roads. The Romans must have approved of this new religion because, as some scholars ask, if the Gospels really were Jewish literature about a Roman sentenced criminal, why wouldn't they have been destroyed? One of the really surprising things for me was to realize the extent of Roman control of propaganda and of literature. So that when you suddenly get all of this Christian literature arising in this period, one has to ask, well, how did that happen? The conclusion that one has to reach is that that could not have happened without some degree of complicity uh, on the part of, uh, of the Romans. So that uh, one is led to the conclusion that the Romans must be involved in the production of this literature. To produce and disseminate this literature was a huge undertaking, and the Flavians undoubtedly had collaborators. We know they were funded by the wealthiest family in the world at this time, the Alexanders, a Jewish family who served as Rome's tax collectors in Egypt. Like the Herods in Judea, the Alexanders had strong motivation to keep the Jews' messianic movement from threatening their position and their wealth. One of their family members was Philo of Alexandria, a famous Jewish theologian who was already writing works that combined Jewish beliefs with the modern Greek and Roman pagan beliefs of the day. Many scholars agree that his writings form the basis for much of the philosophy of Christianity. In these pages is uh, practically every concept that you can find within Christianity. So he combined Greek philosophy and he took that and he combined it with Judaism. On top of that, he was from an extremely wealthy family. And this is important because you have to follow the money when you're looking at major trends, new paradigms being set. And if you look at his family, then you start seeing, uh, well, this is interesting because now we're starting to come across the Flavians again. His relatives were very involved with the Flavians. That whole area is where we want to look very closely for the Christian origins. It's from exactly this same circle of people that you get the first signs of Christian ideology, and they all lead to the rise of the Flavian dynasty. Another wealthy, influential character, Princess Bernice, was from the Herod family in Judea. She's the granddaughter of Herod the Great, a product of the Herod's intermarriage with the conquered Jewish ruling messianic lineage. Princess Bernice appears in the New Testament, which makes her an interesting character. She had two or three husbands and then became the mistress of Titus. So you can see this again, rather like dynasty here. You know, powerful people, mixed marriages, you know, shacking up with the conqueror. Um, yeah, and it's really where Joe Atwell takes his idea of a conspiracy to write the New Testament. But let him say it in his own words. Bernice was a Herod related by marriage to the Alexanders, and of course later she became the mistress to Titus. The fact that she was so closely linked with the Flavian shows you that 
the three families were very unified in financial, romantic, and likely theological issues. By the looks of things, this coalescence seemed to have brought about a dynamic that led to the synthesis of Judaism and paganism and eventually became Christianity. So th this is a very key time period. I believe that the Gospels were actually written under the control of the Herods, the Alexanders, and the Flavians. These families had the motivation to create Christianity and with the expertise in Judaism that the Alexanders and the Herods had, they had the actual technical ability to come up with these stories that are fulfillment of Hebraic prophecies. So it seems the Flavians had the motivation, the means, and the collaborations through which they likely constructed and began disseminating Christianity. And if our scholars are correct, one of the documents they left behind are the Gospels themselves. I began working on the study of the Gospels in the 1970s, and I look at texts in terms of how were these composed, what does understanding their structure tell you about who wrote them, and why they were written. These texts were not independent Jewish texts, but they were created as literary works using classical literary models. If we expect that this is the testimony of witnesses, we've got a major problem. We actually have four anonymous documents. They were not written by the named people on those documents. This is simply church tradition that the Gospels are so named according to Mark, according to Matthew. So this idea that the, the Gospels are reliable testimony is patent nonsense. Why are the Gospels called Gospels? That's a critical question. The word gospel in Greek is evangelion, and it means good news of military victory. Whose military victory are we celebrating here in these gospels? Well, it seems to me that we are celebrating clearly the Roman military victory, because these events, the um, Battle of Gadara, the Battle of the Lake of Galilee, the successful Battle of Jerusalem, these are battles that the Romans won. Why are the Gospels celebrating battles that the Jews lost if these things were written by the Jews? The fact that the Gospels are known to us in Greek and, and not in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew is, I think, just evidence of, of their authorship. They were not written by any followers of Jesus who would have surely spoken Aramaic. And if they had been fishermen and simple folk, they would not have had the literal skills to write them anyway. If we look closely, there actually are clues in the Gospels that point to who the true authors were. A lot of the Christian literature advocates turning away from the Jewish law and obeying Roman law. Well, this, this fits perfectly into Roman propaganda purposes. And then you have, in general, the portrayal of Jesus as the peaceful Jew who is wandering around in what is depicted as a sort of a pastoral scenes talking to fishermen and farmers and so forth, when in fact, this is a war zone. Judea is a war zone. And you ask yourself, well, why is it not portrayed as a war zone? I mean, they really had it down pat. They, kept, they have Jesus saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, which is basically in response to talking about money. Whose benefit would that be? To, 
so blatantly obvious. The perception of Roman characters in the Gospels, they're all interpreted in a favourable light. They are pro-Roman. They do not depict the Romans as the forces of evil. They reverse that. It's the Jews who become the forces of darkness. It's very striking that various passages in the Gospels refer to the Jews as some people separate from the heroes of, of Jesus and his disciples. The Jews are those who object. The Jews are those who try to thwart the divine plan. Now, that gives us a clue, certainly, to who were the true authors of this book. They are works of literature created by people who are trained in Jewish literature but whose values are pro-Roman. The Romans wanted to promote anti-Semitism and so they arranged the story of the beloved man-god, Jesus Christ, to appear as if the Jews had brought about his death. Because of this, uh, the Jews would have to suffer anti-Semitism throughout history. So this was a piece of work that could not have been done except by a fairly established literary team, such as the literary team that was in Rome actually writing the books of Josephus. I mean, that was written by a literary team, and it was written uh, as one of the um, attempts to give prominence to the Flavian Caesars, which the Gospels also do. So it is extremely likely that the Gospels, um, as a form of epic, uh, designed to magnify allegorically the Roman Caesars is also written um, at the court of the Flavian emperors. But the Jesus story takes place many decades before the Flavians came to power. Why would the Flavians create a work about a Jewish Messiah that wasn't even from their own era? The Gospels were very precisely backdated 40 years. Jesus' ministry was started in 30 CE, exactly 40 years from the destruction of the temple. His ministry ends at Passover, 33 CE, which is 40 years before the end of the Jewish-Roman War, which occurred at Passover in 73 CE with the famous Battle of Masada. The Gospels are backdated into the period of Pontius Pilate, that is to say, before the First Jewish War, which is to say, in the Julio-Claudian period. But this is typical of Flavian literature. It's a Flavian technique. What they do is they backdate this story into the period of their enemies, namely the Julio-Claudians. And so generation after generation of Christian scholar and even secular historians go hunting in the Julio-Claudian period for the origins of the Gospels. They don't really find any answers there. There are allusions in the Gospels to the destruction of the temple. The most reasonable answer to that is that these texts were written after the destruction of the temple. That is to say, in the Flavian period, after the change of dynasty. This backdating of the story of Jesus Christ, 40 years earlier from the time the Gospels may actually have been written, explains why many of the prophecies of Jesus came true within exactly 40 years. What does this all add up to? In my view, the thing that is most significant is the research by Joseph Atwell in his book, Caesar's Messiah, which suggests that the Gospels were actually created as works of 
Roman propaganda at the end of the Roman Jewish War under the reign of the Flavian emperors, that is Titus Caesar and Vespasian Caesar. And if you end up worshipping Jesus, what you will really end up doing is worshipping Caesar in disguise. This may have been how the Flavians finally got the Jews to worship Caesar as a god, by giving them Jesus Christ, a Messiah more to the Romans' liking. But is there any actual history to this character? Where did he really come from? The mystery to me begins with his very name. In Greek, Jesus means Savior and Christ means the Messiah. This didn't strike me as something you would call a young child. These two words are already important within Judaism before Jesus Christ supposedly existed. Major biblical figures to a Jewish Greek-speaking populace would already be called Christ. Their ears would already be acclimated to accepting this, this title. So it isn't just a, a unique name of a single person who just suddenly popped up. What did we actually know about Jesus Christ the man? I don't think that Jesus can be historically defended. I don't think there's any evidence that we can extend to that particular Jesus. So when you actually set out to investigate the historical Jesus as opposed to the Christ of faith, you very abruptly enter a void. You find that whereas you might imagine the core details of Jesus are readily known and accessible, you actually discover there's no such thing. Further, there had never been any archaeologic evidence of Jesus Christ that had ever been discovered. You cannot find an established and incontrovertible biography of Jesus at all. It doesn't exist. You enter a strange twilight zone of early Christian belief. What we have here is, is not a movement that's grown on the accretion of legends on an, a real flesh and blood man, but instead the, the development of a religious movement around the idea of a man. There isn't even an actual physical description of what Jesus looked like anywhere in the Gospels. The presentation of the Jesus character, it's somewhat of a composite of many messianic leaders of the time. Many messianic leaders of the time, most or all of whom came to a bad end, usually by crucifixion, because crucifixion was the Roman punishment for seditious activity. And the penny drop, the penny drop that Jesus, as a human being, never existed. In all of this, we're dealing with literature. We're not dealing with history. So the answer is no, there is no um, history to this character of Jesus. It's entirely a literary creation. What the Romans did was they saw the Jews' reliance and belief in prophecy. So they said, okay, they want a prophet, let's give them one. It seems that in the construction of the literary character Jesus Christ, the Roman authors borrowed religious concepts not only from Judaism, but also from other gods and religions that they knew. Some scholars have noticed the similarities between the story of Jesus and the ancient pagan mysteries. In ancient mythology, we find this whole strain of thought called solar mythology. 
Many gods start taking on solar attributes because as agricultural communities become more important, the sun becomes the big focus for the most obvious reasons of planting and harvesting. The sun is then personified, so now we have a male sun god. It becomes a religion in many parts of the world. Christianity usurped a tremendous amount of sun worship. Some of us are saying that this was a sun god turned into a Jewish man. This December 25th birthday was in fact the winter solstice. This is really in fact the birth of the god of light. December 25th actually is the end of a three-day period of when the sun stands still. The sun appears to be dying as the days become shorter and the sun is reborn at that point. Across the ancient world, there was this form of experiential and philosophical spirituality in these mystery cults or mystery schools. Uh, and at the center of these schools, you would find a uh, mythos, which was an initiatory myth, a symbolic myth, which would help uh, people who were going through the initiatory process come to this spiritual awakening, this knowledge, this, what they called gnosis. And what you see in these myths is the elements that will later become the Jesus story. Let's ask the question, is Jesus developed from pre-existing literary characters? Jesus has certain episodes in this so-called life, and each one of them can be traced to a prior representation of that type. If you look at the, the elements which we found in the pagan mystery school myths, you find the story of a dying and resurrecting son of God who's born of a virgin, has 12 disciples, turns water into wine at a wedding, uh, it brings a new religion of love, uh, is uh, accused of heresy or of, of pr provocation by the authorities, is put to death, sometimes by crucifixion. And then if you want to commune with the God-man, you take bread and wine, and then you can come to eternal life. Well, all of this is, of course, Christianity. Easter itself is a long pre-Christian celebration of the resurrection of uh, spring from the death of winter. This is an ancient shamanic rite you'll find all over the world that you go through a ritual death where you get reborn, but you're reborn as an awake being. So you've died just to your lower nature and woken up to your higher nature. You can find them in the Old Testament in the, the Jewish mythology as well. It isn't just pagan parallels. I mean, the New Testament, for example, the Ascension. We have an Ascension with the Old Testament figure of Elijah, and it's a very dramatic Ascension. Elisha, Elijah cycle. These are two Jewish prophets, one followed on from the other, um, which have many of the, the story elements found in Jesus. For example, there is a multiplication of food miracle, there is a raising of the dead miracle, there, there is a water miracle, there is an ultimately an ascension to heaven miracle. Is this fulfillment or is this simply copying of a useful theme? You can see where they just used Old Testament characters and scriptures as a blueprint to create this new one. A lot of the ethics of Christianity actually were around before 
Christianity, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is in fact from the Old Testament. It's, uh, Jesus didn't make that up. Many of the other aspects of Christian ethics, many things which we might like to applaud as very good aspects of Christian ethics, can be found in the Stoic philosophy in Rome, which, by the way, was exactly the philosophical and ethical school promoted by the Flavians. There is little that is original about Jesus. If one separates from his words advice that was in the interest of the Roman imperial family, all that you have left are snippets of widely known philosophies, truisms, and concepts that came directly from prior Hebraic literature. The reason I, I am now convinced there's no historical Jesus, which seems a real, like, whoa, to people who are not familiar with the idea, it is a combination of things. First of all, there's no evidence for an historical man which stands up to proper scrutiny. Secondly, is the story of Jesus is full of these motifs which come from the pagan mysteries. And the third reason is because in the early Christian movement there's these two types of Christians, certainly by the second century, which I think of as Gnostics and Literalists. What marks out the Literalists who will become the Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church is that they've got an historical man. What marks out the Gnostics is that they see it allegorically and their great heresy is that Christ didn't come in the flesh. Now, the winners write history and the history books have been written by the literalists. And all of the tradition about the Romans trying to torture and suppress Christians, these traditions are correct. They definitely persecuted the messianic militaristic Christians and they certainly would have frowned on the Gnostic independent thinking Christians, but the Roman pacifistic giving to Caesar what is Caesar Christians, that group would have been promoted. Which makes it perfect for the Roman Empire. And it's a fascist empire. It's got a very simple message, just believe this, you don't have to transform, and you have to go through the authorities, through the bishops, through the state, ultimately. It's the perfect thing for them to pick up, and that's what they do. Our scholars agree that the Gospels are complex literary creations, drawing from both pagan and Jewish myths. But Joseph Atwell goes a step further to say that the Flavians wrote passages directly into the Gospels which show that they were the authors. One of the most famous prophecies that Jesus makes is about the coming of someone he refers to as the Son of Man. Now many people believe that he's talking about a second coming of himself, and many people believe that this is going to occur some point in the future. Well the fact is, this coming of Jesus has already occurred. Jesus makes very specific prophecies as to what will happen when the Son of Man makes his visitation. He refers to three key events. The Galilean towns will be crushed, Jerusalem will be encircled with a wall, and the temple will be raised, leaving not one stone atop another. He also states exactly when this individual will come. He says that the Son of Man will appear before the generation that is alive and listening to Jesus' words passes away. 
Now, to Jews of this era, a generation is 40 years. And so the only individual that could possibly be the Son of Man that Jesus predicts is Titus Flavius. Titus Flavius did destroy the Galilean towns. He did encircle Jerusalem with a wall, and he raised the temple and left not one stone atop another. And he did this within 40 years. Josephus recorded that no matter how Titus tortured the Jews, they refused to call him Lord or God. So to circumvent this stubbornness, the Flavians wrote the Gospels in which a son of man was predicted to come in the future. Titus fulfilled these prophecies and became the son of man. So you end up worshiping Titus without knowing it. To further support his thesis that the Flavians originated Christianity, Joseph Atwell points to the Roman Catholic Church's earliest saints, known as the Christian Flavians. The Flavian family is connected to early Christianity in a number of unusual ways. So many members of the family were recorded as having been among the first Roman Catholic saints. These include Flavia Domitilla, who is either Titus's sister or his niece, and there is an inscription honoring Flavia for donating the land that became the first Christian catacomb. And Flavia Domitilla was the first Christian saint. Her son, Clement, is recorded as having been the first Roman Catholic Pope after the Apostle Simon. In addition, there were two members of the Flavian household staff, Neros and Achilles. Both of them had churches named after them in the very earliest Christian diocese in Rome. There was a Christian theologian whose name was Titus Flavius Clemens, Clement of Alexandria. And he's the one who actually described the first Christian symbols. And he said they were the anchor, the boat, uh, the fish, the olive branch, the star. And oddly, these are the very symbols that the Flavian Caesars used on their coins. The final connecting point between the Flavian family and Christianity is that in the fourth century, Flavius Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome. The military achievements of Caesars were important to all Romans. So certainly, the Flavian Christians, the group that the Roman Catholic Church states were the first saints of the religion, would have known the identity of the Son of Man that Jesus predicted, who would crush Galilee and circle Jerusalem with a wall and raise the temple, was Titus Flavius. So it seems, if a person knows how to uncover them, there are actually many clues pointing to the Flavian origin of Christianity. And perhaps the most intriguing one that Joseph Atwell uncovered is a secret code the Flavians used in their documents, which enabled him to make his startling discovery. So the Romans had the Jews' scripture. 
locked up inside their imperial court and they studied it. And what they discovered was that there was a unique literary code hidden in the text. This hidden code, which was common in Jewish scripture, was used by the Flavian literary team to place passages into the Gospels that had to be deciphered to be understood. This hidden literary technique is known as typology. Typology is used throughout the ancient Hebraic literature. And it's a genre that is really no longer understood or used today. But simply put, typology is using events from the past to provide form and context for subsequent ones. What we're talking about is stereotypic, stereotypic. In other words, there's an idealized prototype which shows certain characteristics or performs in certain ways. For instance, one of the things they do is they take an old story and they retell it in a new form. And, uh, and they superimpose contemporary history upon old stories. And, uh, and they create these multi-layered texts. In Hebraic typology, texts were designed to be read in comparison to one another or intertextually. And in doing so, a meaning that would not be visible in the surface narration would become apparent to someone who understood the typologic connection between the stories. Hebraic typology connects prophets. Events from the life of one prophet are placed into the life of a subsequent prophet. And this shows that there is a divine pattern established by God connecting his prophets to one another. The Gospels actually show how we can decipher for ourselves this hidden code or typology that was used to create the Jesus story. At the very beginning of the Gospels, there's a primer of this typology. What the author of Matthew has done is take events from the Old Testament and place them into the life of Jesus. These events occur in the same sequence in the story of Jesus as they occur in the Old Testament. Numerous Bible scholars had already identified the following parallels. Both stories have a patriarch named Joseph who travels from Israel to Egypt. A ruler who massacres innocent boys. A divine character who states that all the men are dead who sought your life. And then a return from Egypt to Israel. This is followed by events which have passing through water. In the Old Testament, the Israelites pass through the Red Sea. In Matthew, Jesus is given a baptism in which he passes through water. We then travel into the wilderness. The Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Finally, we have the three temptations. In the Old Testament, we have the temptation by bread, the statement, do not tempt God, and the commandment to worship only God. 
These appear again in Matthew, where Jesus is tempted by bread, tells the devil, do not tempt God, and instructs him to worship only God. Therefore, when you compare the life of Jesus with the life of Moses, you see a linkage that shows that the character in the Gospels was divinely connected to the character in the Old Testament. The life of the first savior of Israel, Moses, foresaw the life of Jesus, who is now claiming to be the next savior of Israel. To understand the rest of the Jesus story, his adult ministry, we simply need to know that the same system of parallel names, locations, and concepts occurring in the same sequence was used to connect Jesus in the Gospels to Titus in the works of Josephus. Our scholars explain this Gospel typology in the following three examples. Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of his ministry. He gathers his disciples to him and he says, do not be afraid, follow me and become fishers of men. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually says catchers of men. Titus comes to the same location, to the Sea of Galilee. He gathers his troops, his disciples together and he says, don't be afraid. And then he leads them, they follow him and they attack a group of, of Jewish rebels. They sink the Jews' boats. The Jews attempt to swim to safety, and the Romans use their spears to catch them. They become fishers of men. The match isn't exact, but we should never expect it to be exact. It's simply a, a type which is repeated across the whole of the New Testament. Jesus is constantly dealing with devils. Josephus also deals with devils, but Josephus defines who these devils are. He states that the devils are those individuals who have a rebellious spirit and rebel against Rome. At Gadara, Jesus encounters one man who has a legion of demons inside his mind. They then are driven out by Jesus. They infect a herd of swine and then this herd rushes wildly into the water. This is a parallel to Titus's battle at Gadara where one individual infects an entire legion of Jews with his demonic spirit and then that group in turn infects another group and this combined group is driven by the Romans into the sea. What's being suggested here is that this story that you find in the Gospels is in some ways sort of like a, a grim parable about that military event. It's sort of like a bit tongue-in-cheek, I think. The Romans had a vicious sense of humour like this, a very black sense of humour. In a medieval text that I've studied, which is called the Gospel of Barnabas, when you read that story, the way it's presented is in an unsophisticated form, that is to say it's sort of been decoded in some ways and it, it becomes clear that, what's, uh, that uh, what we're talking about here are um, the Jewish rebels are chased into the sea and they drown in the sea. In the Gospels these are presented as pigs. This is, a, this is a, uh, once again a very dark 
black sort of Roman sense of humour. Some of these literature really needs to be understood like that. In Josephus's biography, he describes when he was in the entourage of Titus during the closing stages of the siege of Jerusalem, he chanced upon three of his friends who were being crucified. And he pleaded with Titus for their release. And Titus gave that permission and the three figures were removed from the cross. Two of them died and one revived. Now, if you're looking for a stereotypic example of how some idea was floated into the mind of someone writing the Gospels, that is a pretty clear example. It's certainly a strange occurrence that we find such an incident in the works of Josephus when it shows up in such a dramatic form in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea asked the Roman commander to take Jesus down from the cross. In Josephus's history, Joseph Barmatheus asked the Roman commander to take someone down from the cross. Arimathea is a pun on Josephus' last name, Barmatheus. When you read our sources really carefully, and you have to do it really, really carefully, because uh, they didn't spell it out for us, it's, uh, it's effectively very well hidden. Um, we have to understand that our literature, a lot of our literature, is essentially propaganda. The Romans are not writing objective history and all of our literature has been through Roman filters. Perhaps that's the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that uh, this is literature that hasn't been through the Roman filters. It's important to realize that Josephus wrote in an era when allegory was regarded as a science. Educated readers were expected to be able to see another meaning in religious text than the one that appeared in the surface narration. We're dealing with Roman literature on the one hand and Jewish literature on the other, and it has to be said that in both cases, they're much more sophisticated, much more multi-layered and allusive and much trickier than modern readers suspect. No, it's not a simple literature. It's very, very complex allegorical literature that indulges in the literary games that the Romans played. The more you understand about Roman literature in this period, and then you place the Gospels and other Christian literature in that same milieu, you can start to see the games that are being played in that literature. Now, these parallels have been seen by other scholars. But what they failed to notice is that they occur in the same sequence and thereby they create a typologic pattern. The Flavian thesis, it's trying to read these texts in context because in any given text, you've got the text in the first instance and then you've got the context, the environment in which it happens. And of course, in all of these texts also, you've got a subtext. So you've got text, context and subtext and you have to be able to read all of those things. And unfortunately, many religious people who are coming out of seminaries, who are coming out of religious colleges, they're just not being trained in this sort of uh, level of reading. They're instead being trained to just read on one level, which is a literal level. And uh, I think that that's very unfortunate and that that really needs to be challenged. By studying the multiple layers in these ancient texts in the original Greek language, 
Joseph Atwell was able to discover not just a handful, but over 40 typological parallels between the Gospels and the works of Josephus, which show that the ministry of Jesus Christ followed in exact sequence the military campaign of Titus Flavius through parallel names, locations, and concepts. Once I understood the system that the Flavians were using to link Jesus and Titus, I was able to discover dozens of these parallels between Jesus and Titus. And what was amazing is that they occurred in the same sequence. And this simply proves that this was deliberate, that these unusual parallels had been created by the Flavians as a signature. It is their way of telling posterity that they authored the Gospels. These parallels are the Flavian signature of the Gospels. Both Jesus and Titus begin their campaigns at the Sea of Galilee and then go into the Galilean countryside, followed by a journey to Jerusalem. Once they reach the city's outskirts, they pause for a period before they enter. Finally, they leave the city where their campaigns come to an end. To catalog the many parallels, I gave each one a convenient name that related to the concept in that particular parallel set. Starting at Galilee, each of these are episodes that occurred both in the gospel story of Jesus and in the history of Titus's military campaign. Both Jesus and Titus journeyed to Jerusalem, each sending messengers ahead to meet him when he gets to the city. When the Romans get to Jerusalem, they notice that the Jewish factions are fighting against themselves. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus talks about a house divided against itself cannot stand. Then Josephus wrote that in preparation for battle, Titus ordered all of the fruit trees between the Roman camp and the walls of Jerusalem cut down. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus states that if a fruit tree does not bear good fruit, cut it down. Titus goes around the walls of Jerusalem looking for the best place to construct a tower from which they can launch their attack. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus asks, which one of you who is going to build a tower doesn't first sit down and think about the cost? At this point in the history, Titus sends Josephus to ask the Jews what terms they will accept for peace. In the Gospels, Jesus describes a king who sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. Both Jesus and Titus at this point have triumphant entrances into Jerusalem, during which, amazingly, stones are said to cry out. Each then drives a den of thieves out from the area in front of the temple. 
This is followed by Titus encircling Jerusalem with a wall and Jesus predicting that Jerusalem will be encircled with a wall. Because of the wall, starvation sets in in Jerusalem. Josephus wrote that a woman named Mary, who called her son a myth for the world, slayed him, ate him, thereby turning him into a human Passover lamb. In the Gospels, we now have the Last Supper. Jesus tells his disciples, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood, thereby turning him into a human Passover lamb. Here then is the Flavian signature of their authorship of the Gospels. You can see the fingerprints, that they've left their fingerprints all over these texts. You can start to, as it were, decode uh, these texts and uh, start to arrive at some really startling conclusions about how early Christianity first arose. Our scholars have shown that the Gospels were not the product of primitive Jewish fishermen. Rather, they are a sophisticated literary work combining religious ideas of the day with Roman political perspective and power. Joseph Atwell's research reveals that reading the works of Josephus concurrently with the New Testament shows that the events of Jesus' life were not historical, but rather all of them are dependent on the events in the military campaign of Titus Flavius. Jesus Christ was an allegory for the Roman Caesar Titus, the Messiah of the Roman Empire, the Roman son of a God that Christianity was set up to worship. I certainly don't want to undermine the positive things in Christianity. I'm happy to admit that there are positive things in Christianity and in other religions as well. What's at issue here are the historical claims of these religions. Traditionally, religious dogma has forbidden the examination of historical discoveries or the inclusion of certain scientific findings in their teachings, asking their followers instead to blindly believe as they say, not as the objective facts may show. We live in a time, perhaps it's a new intellectual renaissance, which is getting fed up with many of the structures that we live with and which is recognizing major frauds at the heart of our financial markets and the heart of, heart of our industry and the plug is being pulled on them. And my view is that we have yet another fraud, the biggest of them all, and it's a fraud at the heart of Christianity. And it is a time for whistleblowers to come out and to make this information available, not just to scholars in academic journals, but to have it widely available to anybody who wants to know. It's helpful to hear a wide diversity of voices in order for people to arrive at their own conclusions. And the theories brought forth by our scholars are a part of that diversity. When they hear that the Jesus story is a myth, people feel that you're taking something away, but you're really not. You push people and you go, why do you believe in historical Jesus? Often people will go, well, you know, the Bible or something. But when you go, well, have you studied it as an historical document? Have you looked at the evidence? They'll go, well, no, I haven't. So that's not the real reason. The real reason when you push people is, well, I have a relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's what I don't want to lose. And that's a really good reason to be a Gnostic and a really bad reason to be a literalist. 
The Gnostics, as well as pre-Christian pagan mystery schools, believed that the myth of the dying and resurrecting God-man was an allegory to be used for personal growth, to die to their lower nature and arise to their higher nature. The literalists took control of the original myth and shaped it so it would take the power away from the individual and place it into a central authority. Rediscovering the original myth gives people the freedom to choose the beliefs that truly serve them. Okay, some Christians have developed their personal faith to the extent that Christ is this energy or force or power within them. This is how they have interpreted the story now. The story has become again what it actually began as an allegory. I have no issue with the Christ within. I have an issue with the, with the church militant. What threatens humanity is organized, regimentized religion on the march, taken so seriously that you will act out its worst precepts. If we examine all the religions of the world, we find that there is a common thread that connects all faiths and all people. And it is from this connection that we can make the choices that have now become so critical to our future. I like to focus on the origins of religious ideas. And it turns out that they're very unifying underneath uh, all of the divisiveness that we see on the surface. It would be extremely helpful for all of humanity to realize that there is this underlying unity. And those origins are basically nature worship, the study of the sun, the moon, the stars, planets. This is all what humanity has been looking at, of course, with great awe and reverence for thousands of years. And it's extremely important, I think, for us to get back to those roots. The destruction of the planet is also directly tied to religious ideas. This can help to restore balance to the planet in a very, very profoundly significant way. The very survival of humanity depends on viewing history from a new perspective so that we can be clearer on the historical facts and still honor the myths that offer us the greatest wisdom. It's uh, what the myth, what the poetry says that matters not what actually actually happened. So each new generation, whatever you say, is going to hear the myth. And that's what is true for them. And what follows is uh, uh, the actual history is much too complex for the average person to ever get their head around. Though the actual history is complex, and we may never know all the facts about what happened 2,000 years ago, the voices of our scholars are contributing to an ever-widening dialogue and the growing paradigm shift being witnessed all around the world today that can lead to a more empowered and enlightened humanity tomorrow. This is really important for our culture to understand where Christianity came from. And this is direct evidence. You can actually walk this path and come to this conclusion. You can know that Christianity was an invention of the Romans. It was done to pacify their subjects. And this is important because it gives us a different way of understanding government, how government operates, the tools that government uses, the purpose that government has for the various propaganda apparatus.
Evangelical Christians are getting away with debunking facts as mere theories, even subjects like evolution, but they provide no evidence for their position other than to simply cite religious dogma. And if you look at the influence that dogma is having in the media today, you can easily see it is increasing. I would like to challenge these extremists to consider the possibility that my findings are correct. Though there is much good in Christianity, we have to understand how rulers have used it to control us and how they are still using it to control us today. I hope citizens will be more skeptical when they hear an authority figure using faith to interpret laws or a belief in Armageddon to create governmental policies. The Flavians encoded a secret message into the Gospels, which we can now understand in a new light. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.